Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here again. Good to see you, Donnie, for such a long time being away last week. When you're not here, we really do miss you. You know, we really do, right? Everybody miss Donnie Bourgeois? For those of you who don't know who he is, this is the one right here. We're pointing, who's Donnie Bourgeois? Never heard of him. Well, this morning, thank you for being here again. Thank you for saying to the weather, we will not be deterred from studying the Word of God. Amen? Look, it's just a decision. Fifteen feet of water outside, I'm swimming through it, I'm getting to church. <laughs> so where were we after Katrina? <laughs> we all left. So good to see you this morning. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. This morning, I think we'll finish chapter 13. And my plan is, and I always say it that way, my plan is the outline that I've already done, etc., is to finish chapter 13 this morning and then do chapter 14 next week, and then we'll proceed into 15 and 16. And so that's, again, the general plan. So as you're reading ahead, after this morning, you might want to read the entire chapter of 14, and then we'll be discussing it next week. And again, I say I plan because the teacher in this class, as in everything we do in this church, and hopefully in every church, the teacher is not the person who speaks. This is a voice. This is a megaphone. This is a conduit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Amen. So as we listen to the Word this morning, <clears throat> let's listen not to the voice of a man and to how he says and what illustrations he uses, but let's, let's, let's listen to discern and receive uh, and be built up by the voice of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you so much for ministering to us. Fathers, we begin this morning, we begin by thanking you and acknowledging your presence with us by the Spirit. Father, we don't ask you to be among us because Jesus promised where two or more gathered, I am right there, right in the midst. So, Father, we first thank you for being among us by the Spirit. And, Father, as we proceed this morning, we ask that you will do the speaking and the teaching. You will cause our ears to hear with understanding and our hearts to receive that we may know you, experience you in a greater way than when we came in here. So, Father, as we leave this morning after these several minutes, we may leave having met with you having encountered you. Father, we know that this is your will, so we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're continuing, and you remember what we did last week. We took, in the beginning of chapter 13, we took the parable of the weeds and the wheat, and we talked about that, and then we jumped down to Jesus' explanation of that parable. And so we discussed that last week. And so if you were here this morning and you weren't here last week, this is what's going on. We're not skipping something important, but we've already discussed the parable and its interpretation last week. And so this morning we're just picking up kind of in the middle of the chapter and moving on. So this morning we're in verses 31 to 33. And in this chapter, Jesus is using several parables and similes and analogies, again, to describe 
the activity and the impact of the kingdom of God in the midst of a world of opposition. And what this should say to us, rather than just us gathering information about things, is that each one of us who are saved or members of this kingdom about which Jesus is speaking. And as Jesus says and promises and decrees that my kingdom will grow, my kingdom will overcome, that my kingdom will triumph, triumph, that's going to happen by the eternal decree of a sovereign God. God wins. Do we have that in our hearts? God always wins. But we're in the midst of a time and in a season and in a world that I don't know whether God's winning. Anybody ever feel that way? Anybody? It sound, feels sometimes like we're on a boat and we're taking in a whole lot of water and we're beginning to list. You know what I mean? Kind of go over to the side. We're in the storms of life. And we, I think if we're honest, we constantly ask, where are you? What's going on? When will we get through this? How will we be? Et cetera, et cetera. And we should ask these questions. If our heart is there, ask. Ask. And so these parables are given for various reasons, one of which is for us to hear them and to know for sure that what God has begun in our hearts, He will make it all the way through in fullness to the end. What verse did I just quote? Philippians 1.6. He who has begun a good work. And how do we know? What is the single guaranteed experience or sign or activity? What is that activity that absolutely seals and guarantees that what God has begun, He will finish? What is it? The resurrection. The resurrection. Not how I feel. Not what I'm hoping for tomorrow. Not when issues cease. There is one issue, one single proof that substantiates, authenticates, and guarantees that what Jesus says and does in these Gospels is the truth then, now, and all the way into eternity. Amen? That's guaranteed because once Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. He was crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. He was exalted he was given rule over all the heavens and the earth. And there is sitting in the throne of God an exalted man who now rules over all the affairs of the world and of the cosmos, bringing about the eternal decree and will of the Father by sending the Holy Spirit into the world. And we are part of that great work of God. So let's be secure in what he's done. So verses 31 to 33. 
And Jesus puts another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Remember, we're talking about sowing and reaping. Remember the good sower of the good soil, and then last week the uh, the the two kinds of seed: the seed of the sons of men, uh, of the son of God, and the seed of the son of the enemy. Remember, this is the motif, the gardening motif. And a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. So I've taken these two parables together because they, they say essentially the same thing in two different aspects. In both of these parables, Jesus is telling his disciples that the kingdom is going to begin inauspiciously. It's going to begin small. When you look at the number of people in the world, how many are there? Six, seven billion? Is it something like that? And I don't know how many believers there are in the world. But there are several thousand, maybe a hundred thousand million. I don't know. But when you compare how many believers in Christ are in this world of six or so billion people, this is a grain of mustard seed. And to the world, it looks insignificant. Poor, weak, silly, foolish, destined to dissolve and be of no effect anymore as the world increases in knowledge and wisdom and scientific advancement and technology. More and more we are learning that there is no God and we don't need him and we may as well throw over this old religion because man is now coming into his own glorified state. Amen? That's what they think. Jesus says this is going to happen you're just going to be a grain of mustard seed, but you are going to grow into the great size that will impact and permeate all the cultures of the world. And so given the size of the church, given the size of the church, it's amazing the impact that the gospel has had through all, all the cultures of the world into which it has gone. And why is that? It's not because of us. It's because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, among us, and through us. And so the kingdom not only will grow in the midst of constant and even violent opposition, it will not only grow in the midst of this, God will also use this opposition to further the growth and so we have two things here, opposition to the kingdom. God promises my kingdom shall grow in the midst of it all and through it all to a great size. And not only will my kingdom grow in the midst of all this going on, but I will actually use and orchestrate what is happening against the church for the growth and the good of my name through the church. And so let's be careful how we look at the opposition of the enemy the personal opposition in my own life, the temptations, the difficulties that I experience through my weaknesses, the opposition of relationships, the opposition of, of whatever it is, it doesn't matter. God's kingdom is not only going to grow, but if we will open our hearts and our minds to receive it, 
he is actually going to be using all of that for the strengthening and the maturity of his church. The kingdom also begins as a, uh, it, it, it expands, remember, to expand and become the largest bush in all the, uh, the, the, um, the garden. The kingdom will also begin as a small amount of yeast or leaven that is placed into the cultures of the world. The loaf is a culture of the world. God places the yeast of the gospel of his kingdom into the world, which eventually the kingdom will permeate the entire loaf. Same idea. Starting off small, looking insignificant, looking weak, but one day the whole world will be filled with the glory of God. You see, in both of these parables, Jesus promises that his kingdom will engulf and fill the earth with the glory of God by God's sovereign decree. Remember what Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the, earth will, for the earth will be filled. What? For the earth what? Hopefully, might be, I don't know if it will be, and we're part of this kingdom. So God will use us. He is using us. The kingdom will, the earth will be filled with the glory, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you remember that's, that's Paul's prayer in Colossians 1, verse 9. I pray that you what? Be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual knowledge and wisdom. I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual knowledge and wisdom. This is happening. So again, I say, take heart. Whatever is going on in your life, and if nothing's going on today, wait for tomorrow morning and it will come. God is building his kingdom. We are the mustard seed. We are the leaven. You see, this is all in keeping with God's creative purpose. Why is this happening? What is happening here? This is all in keeping with God's creative purpose. Where do we see God's creative purpose first announced? You see, we should not read any of the Bible, and especially when we get to the New Testament, we should not read it in ignorance of the Old Testament because what began in the Old Testament in the beginning is moving forward is now being fulfilled in the New Testament and will be fully fulfilled forever at the end in Revelation. And so we must see again the Bible as a comprehensive unity, one comprehensive revelation. So as the kingdom grows and develops, what is this in keeping with? What purpose of God? Genesis what? Chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. What we see here is the outworking of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And again, it's, it's, we need not read the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, apart from those verses. Because everything that is happening in this context in Matthew, everything that Jesus is doing, everything that he is experiencing, everything that he is teaching and talking about and sharing and, and whatever he's doing, everything about that is because of Genesis 126-28. All of that is in fulfillment of a promise that God made when he created humanity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And then in verse 28, he tells you how that will work out. So let's see it that way. Let's see the continuum of God's work here. It's also, remember, the fulfillment of God's purpose is Exodus 25, 8. Remember, the Lord said, build me a tabernacle. Why? So I can dwell in their midst. Why do you want to dwell in their midst? Because I am making humanity after my image. Remember in uh, Isaiah 7, 14, uh, Emmanuel, you know, I will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and have a child. And you know, shall call his name what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. All of that are indications and prophecies and promises of the outworking of Genesis 1, 28 Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. Remember that? And he talks about the government of the kingdom will be upon, the government of this world will be upon his shoulders, and this kingdom shall continue to increase and will be an everlasting kingdom. This is what Jesus is talking about in these parables. These are parables to say that what was promised and prophesied then has already begun in your very sight to these disciples, and this is what we are experiencing today. We are experiencing the outworking literally of these prophecies. We are the outworking working of what God has promised for thousands of years. When you look at this parable, you see, did you take note of something? And quite fr frankly, I didn't take note of it until I saw and I read about this. In the first parable of the mustard seed, Jesus uses the male task, a man planted. You see that? A man planted. Well, he's a chauvinist, right? I mean, yeah, really, Jesus, yeah, that's the day where men were somebody and women were nobodies. For the mustard seed. And then he uses a typical female task, a woman mixed. Remember the leaven. For the, what is it, the yeast parable. So he uses the male and the female analogies here. I think in this way, what Jesus is doing, he's emphasizing the need for both men and women in the church to work in unity for the building of his kingdom. Listen to me. Each one, each man and each woman is equally important to the promulgation of his gospel. One of the things that I try, hopefully the Spirit makes it, an impact in couples' lives. When folks come to me for premarital counseling, and some of you have done that in here, and some of you are still doing it right now, waiting to be married. How much longer, John, is it? You should have it on your lips, brother, just like that. It should be just rolled off. 232 days, eight, 18 hours, 16 and a half minutes. It just should roll off. You see, He's a Ph.D. physics uh, whatever right now, but this is more important than Ph.D. physics. So we won't tell Ellie you didn't quite. Does she listen to the podcast? Uh-oh, we're in. Oh, well, Ellie, Ellie, it's, it's not his fault, Ellie. I caught him off guard. He really does know. <laughs> Cody was bothering him at the same time, right? It was Cody's fault. What were we talking about? I get sidetracked, sidetracked sometimes. You'll notice that about me. Henry, this happens. This is what you get for having an old person who kind of moses around and doesn't know. What were we talking about? I don't remember. What? Oh, equal. 
I always want to emphasize something here, and I want to emphasize it again this morning. Husbands and wives, this pertains to all in the church, but especially we don't, we sometimes struggle. Husbands and wives are both equal in significance and in contribution in everything they do. Each one having a distinctive role, not wanting to interfere or crisscross the roles. But never think the husband is more important than the wife or the wife is more important than the husband. Or never think that the pastor is more important than the first you just walked into church and got saved this morning. Never think because before God we are all equally significant and eternally so. The distinction is roles. Amen? The roles that we are given. And these roles are to reflect the various roles of the persons within the Trinity. And so the roles that we are given as believers are to be in fulfillment and to be manifesting the various roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why it is so significant in our minds to say that we believe God gives to the church male leadership. Why? Because God the Father leads the church. He is the Father. He is the fount of all the revelation and all the, uh, the, the leadership of the Trinity, equal with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the Son comes to do the Father's will, etc. and the Holy Spirit takes that will and applies it. These are roles that God functions within himself. And this is how we are to be. Verses 34 to 35. All of these kingdoms, Jesus said to the crowds in the parables. I'm sorry, all of these things, Jesus said to the crowds in the parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Remember that? We've, we've seen that already. Why are you speaking in parables? Why don't you just start saying things real clear and plain so we can all hear it? I want everybody in the world to hear and understand exactly what we're saying about the gospel. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. <clears throat> now, here's the word of God. Here's the Word of God. Here is God Himself, Yahweh, who is speaking these words. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So why does He do that? Do you remember that? Why don't you speak plainly? Remember after the sower and the seed? What is God doing here? It's very interesting. See, God's God does not think like we do. Our thinking is this. The gospel is proclaimed throughout the world. That's true. That's the truth. And everybody who hears the gospel hears the same word. That's true. Jesus died to forgive sin. Everybody hears that. Everybody hears that word. Everybody. But the difference is some hear it and don't get it, don't understand it, and even reject it. Right? Have you experienced that in your own life? You've shared the gospel and someone comes in, you must be crazy, man, and walk away. And then some hear the same word and receive it. Have all of you seen this? How many of you remember? I think all of us were probably raised in a church. 
I think we all began at little babies and came up through the church, and we were in the church in our day. We went to church Sunday morning. We went to church Sunday night. We went to church Wednesday. We were always in church, always. And yet, at least for me, and I know it's true for Gene, we were in church over 20 years. And then one day we heard that word. Oh, oh, I just heard the gospel. Well, do you think that's true? Yes, it is, and no, it isn't. Because we have probably heard it many times, but didn't what? Hear it with understanding. And then in a moment, we heard it, and what happens? Have some of you experienced this? All of a sudden, you realize, oh, I need to be saved. I, I'm going to hell. I'm under the wrath of God. I need a Savior. I need to be forgiven. And Jesus, do you remember that day? Some of you remember that? I need to be saved. I, I'm in trouble. Well, that was a word I heard for years, Phyllis. Then one day, wham, like a freight train, it hit me. But then the person next to me hears the same word, Adam, the same word, same word, buh, 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 and never, ever gets it. Why? Because you see, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to cause his people to hear with understanding by faith to receive that word that God has spoken. Correct? You see that in Ezekiel 36, 25, 6, and 7. So the word goes out to everyone. Everyone hears, but not everyone hears the same way. And we saw that in these parables. And so that's why Jesus, again, is speaking in parables. Now, here's the real problem with that. How many of you, now let's be honest, how many of you, when you just heard what I said, think this way, that's not fair? Come on, come on. How many of you think, that's not fair? That's not fair. I'm the only one that's thought that. Okay. You see what happens. You have a weirdo as a teacher, you see. <laughs> At least I'm the only one who wants to admit it. It's not fair. You see, the fair thing is that God should give everybody the same chance. And for those who want to be saved, they get saved. For those who don't want to be saved, well, it's a, you know, that's their problem. The problem with that is, Nobody wants to be saved. Nobody understands. Nobody is even able to be saved outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. We've read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. If you haven't, please go back and read it. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And those whom God illumines and saves are his people forever. He does not save someone and then allow them to fall away again. Those whom he saves, he keeps saved through the end. By grace you've been saved through faith, and he keeps us saved by the gift of faith that not only allows us to receive this life that we have been given, receive the life that we have been given, but also to continue in this life that we have been given all the way till the end. Verses 44 to 46, 
the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Boy, what a scoundrel this guy is, huh? Doesn't tell the owner, hey, look, you got a million dollars in your field. Could I buy the field? $100? Fine. Again, the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, notice this, please. Jesus is not approbating scoundering, you know, the scoundrel who covered it up and didn't tell anybody. He's not. He's just telling you what this man did to make a point of the activity here, of the treasure here. He uses a simile. You remember, it is like a simile of a hidden treasure in the field and a pearl of great price to show the value of the kingdom surpasses the value of anything in this world. I don't want to make sure we see this. If I ask you, and some of you know already, sometimes there are hooks in my questions. Are you worthy to be a member of God's kingdom? Now, think for a second. Just think. I didn't say, do you feel worthy? Are you worthy to be a member of the kingdom of God? Jack, I'm not going to answer. Don't answer. Are you worthy? Steve, are you worthy? Stephen, are you worthy? Just think. Mary, are you worthy? Think. Are you worthy, Debbie? Think. Are you worthy? Here's the answer. Yes and no. Yes and no. If you're thinking of intrinsic worth because of who I am by nature, because of my personal intellect, my background, my good works, I was raised in a church. I did all kind of good things. If that's the basis of your worth, of who you are and what you have done in order for God to save you, then John what? The answer is what? You're not worthy. None of us are worthy intrinsically by nature. None of us are worthy because of who we are and what we have done. So if the perspective and the emphasis is upon us, the answer, Debbie, is what? No. Uh, Diana, is what? No, I'm not worthy. Here's the problem, however. Too many believers get stuck there and don't go to the rest of the place. Why does someone, why would any of you in here, any of us, why would we sell everything we have to buy something? Because what do we see in it? Great worth. But to whom? To us. Do you see that? Great worth to us. Have you ever watched one of these programs and somebody buys something for $1,000 and you say, what in the world? Why? <sighs> Who would want to spend a thousand? Any of you had that? You spent how much on that? What are you thinking about? So you know. What, but for you, it was a great worth. It was worth the purchase. And so, in and of ourselves, no. But you see, 
those who have been purchased by the Son of God, by the blood of Jesus, that purchase at the highest price says to me and should say to all of us that God has bestowed upon us a worth so high, so high, a worth so high that it took the very life of His Son to purchase me and you into His kingdom. That's a worth. I want us to see that. Because you see, the devil loves to run us down. And when we don't do something or we said something wrong or whatever happened, he begins to drum into our heads what? You're not worth it. You're not worth it. And the Holy Spirit says, oh, no. We, in God's sight, for his purpose, from his perspective, for his purpose, are of infinite value to him. How do I know that? Because the life of the Son of God is given for us. So what does 2 Corinthians 4, 7 say? Remember, we've been talking about the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. These are treasures. So what does 2 Corinthians 4, 7 say? And you need to know this, for we have this treasure, this Son of God, this fellowship with God the Father. We have this treasure where? In earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What do the apostles say after being beaten and as they left? What do they say in Acts? They thank God, what? That they were counted, reckoned, declared to be worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. You see, these men weren't saying, we are worthy, therefore we suffered. The mystery of the gospel is, you and I were never worthy in ourselves. Never. Never. But God declared, decided that we would be of infinite worth to him as members of his own family. And so for those of you who have at least adopted children or th think of your children as adopted, before that child was your child, and, of course, God knows it, but you didn't know. Would you have paid how much for that child? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but once that child is yours or you put your heart and your thoughts upon that child, how important does that child become to you? Everything. Everything. So let's make sure we get it straight. We are of no intrinsic, personal, good works value. But God reaches down into the filth and the muck of this world and takes us out of it, this filthy mass that was in the natural, and by the power of His Spirit transforms it into an incredible vessel 
of honor that demonstrates, what kind of God is this? That he would take people such as we and transform us into the reflective glory of his own son. What kind of a God does that? You see, this is, Islam hates this. It literally does, hates it. The religion of man hates this. Because, you see, man strives to be worthy in himself. And God takes that unworthiness of ourselves and in ourselves and transforms us into the highest worth to himself. Can we make sure that we get the tension correct in our lives? So the next time, and I know that some of you battle with this. I have battled with it in my day. I was raised in a family that, let me tell you, you were not not that great and worthy. And it took years, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit began to change me, and I began to show me no. To the world, you are a piece of But to me, you're a diamond, a sparkling diamond. So each one of us are a piece of God's puzzle. Lying on the ground by itself, I wouldn't give you a dime for that thing. It ain't worth nothing. Look, there it is. That's what I think of it. That's what we were worth. But then the Holy Spirit goes into the world looking for those pieces of God's puzzle that in themselves have no worth in connection to anything of God. And he finds the piece of puzzle here and one over there and one over there and one over there. By the decree of the Father, these are my pieces. These are the pieces you go get. These are the pieces you get. And he gets that piece and he cleanses it. He cleanses it of all the filth, and he puts it in the right place within the great puzzle of God. Then that piece is of worth. Why? Because it fits right there, right there. (gasps) And without that piece, the puzzle isn't complete. And when the puzzle is completed on that great day, that puzzle will be the smiling face of the Son of God. Each one of us, all we dirty pieces of puzzle, is that where our worth is? Don't stay stuck in the mud. See yourself there in one context, but also see yourselves. We're part of God's puzzle. Amen? And then the, the net, kingdom of heaven like a net, thrown into the sea and gathered fish on every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. You see, the good and the bad. So it would be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's going on? Jesus says, the net of the gospel is going into all the world and all the fish of the world, all the fish of the world. All the fish of the world will be gathered, all of it. Nobody will be left out of this net. Everybody will be in the net having heard the gospel. 
Well, I don't know about that. I know some folks who live in China ain't never heard of the gospel. Well, just read Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and that hopefully will be shown to you by the Spirit. Everybody knows. I don't have time this morning. I can give you that incident again. Remember the guy in that back in Venezuela, the little Indian man, they never even seen white people. And when the preacher said, he was in our church, and when the preacher said the name of Jesus, a guy went up, bam, bam, yelling and screaming, whatever they thought, man, something's wrong. After the service, what's, what's going on? The man said, for five years, I've been going to the clearing and looking at over the hill there and all the clearing, and for five years, I've been looking to heaven and say, I know you're there. I want to know your name. And when he heard Jesus, oh, that's the name. Nobody of God's kingdom will ever be lost. You got it? Do you get that? Nobody. Jesus says, I lose none. And those whom the Father gives to me, none of them will be snatched away. And the net goes out. And so there are going to be folks in the kingdom and out of the kingdom, and on the great day of judgment, the things will be separated. And then finally, Jesus said, y'all get this? And they say, yeah, we got it. We get these, 51 and 52. We, got, we understand this. And then Jesus, and I'll just let you see, the 53 to 58, leaves and goes home, goes home, goes to Nazareth. And they say, ah, we know you. You're just another one. I remember you. You were that little boy who used to run around. And I, mean, I know who. You, you know, you're the carpenter's son. Who are you? You see that disdain, that relegating Jesus to just another man, just another guy who preaches and teaches. And what does the Bible say? He did not do any mighty works among them. Why? It isn't that their lack of faith bound him to not doing it. He decided not to throw pearls before swine. I will not give them the treasures of the kingdom to those who don't believe. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to do the great works. He did a few things, but he didn't do the mighty works. You see what it says? He did not do. Don't fall for this teaching that Jesus can't if we won't. I mean, how do we ever get saved? If he did when we wouldn't, he can certainly continue to do when we don't. Do we get that? So be of good cheer. This week we go into a world that is sinking and burning and dying. We know that. Just listen to the news. But we are of an everlasting kingdom. We're God's treasure. And one day, there will be a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness reigns, and we will be with the Lord forever. Amen. See you next Sunday.